0: We're going to start there in the first 14 verses. This is going to be a kind of a six-part mini-series within our series of Matthew. So we've been going through the book of Matthew for some time now. We're in the fourth book, uh, and you'll see there's different study guides in the back. This is the fourth one. And um, the next six sermons, uh, my hope is to bring clarity. Sometimes, a lot of times, I fear I'm going to bring more confusion. So uh, I apologize ahead of time. Um, for, or for what happens, but we are um, speaking about the end times, uh, and chapters 24 and 25 are uh, some of the most uh, full passages about the end times that Jesus spoke uh, about, so we're going to be uh, going through that, and so you'll see a lot of the end, and that is kind of the series title, so everything will be something the end, for the end, the end, the end, the end, because uh, that's what we're talking about. So if you turn to Matthew 24, we're going to get right to work on the verse, uh, verse 1 and the first 14 verses. And here's what uh, the Word says. So Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then they will deliver deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is God's word, and I'm going to pray so I don't mess it up. Father God, we thank you for your word. You declare in the book of Deuteronomy that there is much that you have left a mystery, but there is much that you have revealed. And so I pray that today and every day that we preach, Father, that you will help us understand those things that you have revealed. Holy Spirit, move me out of the way. Teach all of us and reach us, Father, where we need to be reached, whether it be through conviction or comfort. But lead us to the cross where we find hope and joy and meaning and peace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, Today, uh, I probably will sound more like a teacher than a preacher. I honestly am probably a better teacher than preacher, but um, I'm going to give you a lot of information and it's going to be probably difficult for you to take notes. I had actually had several sheets of notes that I wanted to print up for you. I'll have available next week, but by God's providence, one of our little missionaries decided to put a pile of mixed nuts into our copy machine, literally, and it's now shooting out cashews and almonds, and so um, I couldn't do that for you, um, but that's the way the Lord wanted it, so I would caution you to be careful about taking too many notes. I'll have these notes on uh, online, and then I'll print some stuff up for you next week. So I'm going to give you a lot of information. It's going to feel like a history lesson a little bit, but I think it's really important as an introduction to these uh, chapters. And... To be truthful, historically, the book of Matthew has been called the book of saints. And uh, it's called that because the book of Matthew, um, Jesus is portrayed as a teacher. It has the, the most direct teaching of Jesus of all the gospels. And specifically, there are five major sections of teaching that Jesus um, kind of involves himself with the Sermon on the Mount and others. And this last sermon. Uh, the Olivet Discourse, they call it, on the Mount of Olives, is the fifth of five large sections of teaching where Jesus just directly teaches His disciples a lot of information. And to give you some context, this follows uh, several days of teaching that He spent in the temple. He came into Jerusalem. It's the last week of His life. He cleared out the temple, and then He spent two days teaching in the temple and we saw at the end of 23, he ended kind of his last bit of teaching with a very direct and bold, um, you know, comprehensive judgment upon the leadership of Judaism, what we called bad leaders. Uh, and then, uh, having declared that they're not going to escape hell, he kind of like, boom, drops the mic and then walks out. And they're just like, oh my goodness. And the disciples are apparently, as you begin 24, somewhat surprised that Jesus would just walk out of the temple and abandon this beautiful classroom that he has spent the last few days teaching in. And if you historically kind of just read about the temple of this time, it will be called the second temple or Herod's temple. It's beautiful. Uh, Some have considered it like the eighth wonder of the world because it's just gorgeous and so as they walk out, you can imagine Jesus is just like, "You guys are probably going to hell." Boom! And he walks out, and the disciples are like, well, "Where's he going?" And as he walks out, they're like, "Man, look at this. Jesus! Do you not like, you see where? Like, do you see this stuff? It's pretty like they're like tourists. Like, this is pretty rad." And Jesus goes, "Yeah, you see all this stuff? It's all going to be destroyed." And they're just like, "What?" Because this is the temple. This is the center of Judaism. This is this grand, huge, you know, architectural monument to the presence of God. And Jesus is like, yeah, and there's not going to be a stone left. And he keeps walking out. And then he goes and he sits upon uh, the Mount of Olives. And the disciples come to him privately. And this was a place that in the book of Zechariah, which is an Old Testament prophet, He prophesied that the Messiah, when he came, he would come onto the Mount of Olives. It's the same place where Jesus spends the last few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the same mountain. It's the same mountain where Jesus ascends to heaven from. It's a very important mountain. So he's sitting on this mountain, not like at the peak of it, but like on this mountain. And his disciples come to him privately, and they begin to ask him some questions. And... What we can infer from their questions is that Jesus' statement about the impending doom of the temple has really shaken them. And so they ask him, uh, when are these things that you just talked about going to happen? What are these things going to be? And the things that they're referring to is the statement he made about the destruction of the temple. But they also ask him something else. And so Jesus' whole sermon, if you want to call it that, or his teaching on this mountain, really is about two things. One is the end of the temple. called call it the end of Judaism. But it's the end and the destruction, the literal destruction of the temple. And the end of the world, which includes his second coming. So those are the two questions that Jesus is going to spend time in Matthew 24 and 25 answering. And the key to reading Matthew 24 and 25 is to understand what parts are from question one and what parts are from question two. But he's answering both of them. Now, Matthew 24, you may be familiar with Matthew 24. You may have never heard that there was a 24th chapter in Matthew. I don't know. But this has some of the most direct teaching from Jesus about His second coming and the end of the world. As such, this chapter has been very controversial in the history of the church. Uh, there has been all kinds of um, books and, and classes and studies, and, and there are very godly and biblical men and a few unbiblical ones who have devoted their lives to this the stuff in this chapter. And so I am not prideful enough to believe that, well, let me tell you in 45 minutes what this all means. Like, these guys, there's books upon books upon books. So I'm going to do the best I can, recognizing that I'm just going to be real honest with you. This stuff is hard to understand. It's confusing. Um, it's mysterious. And that's why I continue to go back to Deuteronomy 29:29, 29, 29, where Jesus, or God, should say, spoke and said, that there's much um, that God has left a mystery, but there's much He's revealed. So we're trying to discern the stuff that God has revealed, recognizing that there's a lot He's left mysterious. Now, the points of contention about Matthew 24 are not so much about what happens as much as it is about when certain things happen. Uh, concerning the what, Most evangelical scholars agree there are certain things that happen. And you've probably heard of many of these things. Uh, They agree that there is some sort of great tribulation for Jesus' people. There is uh, an anti-Jesus or anti-Christ that is localized around a person or persons. Uh, Most evangelical scholars agree Well, I should say all of them agree that there's a literal return of Jesus. Uh, Most agree that there is some sort of reigning of Jesus. Jesus rules and reigns in some fashion, that there is a final judgment by Jesus, and that there is an eternal life, an eternal state with Jesus. So they agree that those things are there. How and what order those things come in are where we get some disagreement. And I'm not going to be able to go into every detail uh, of what um, those things are if so I would probably bring in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel two other very apocalyptic end times books but we could be here for weeks and the reality is um, I want to approach this as if we just have Matthew 24 uh, about at least end times uh, 24 and 25 and just kind of spend our time in this text because that's where uh, we are um, But the biggest questions that we're going to have, and the the ones that I'm going to actually take a position on in certain things, uh, are these. The the biggest points of contention are, are these things historical or are they futuristic? Did what we read in Matthew 24 already happen or are they going to happen? Um, Are these things figurative or are they literal? Are these things uh, applied to just Jews or did it apply to the church? So those are like a lot of the big questions where people will end up. And and where you end up will typically give you a particular position on end times, um, where however you understand Matthew 24 is how you view the world's going to end. Now, in the back of this guide, which uh, we produced at the very beginning of this study, I don't know, 15 weeks ago, and there's three others for the other parts of Matthew, I'm sure you spent hours just, you know, going over this and reading it, and um, but I knew that sometime you might want to, like today. So on the back page, you'll find a chart of different views, of which I will summarize today, but I probably won't do the best job of it, at least not a, as much as this chart does, is to give you some insight, recognizing that um, there are various schools of thought about what we're going to talk about. And I want everyone to understand that there are respected um, evangelical Christians who hold all four of the views presented in there. I have friends, there are pastors that you know, schools, if you will, that teach them all, and I would say that they are all Christian. Now, eschatology, which is the study of end times, is one of those things that we call open-handed theology. And by open-handed, I mean we can disagree and not deny some essentials that make us Christian. And we can say, well, I think it says this, I think it says this. All right, love you, brother, love you, brother. So that's okay. The problem is, even with an open-handed thing like eschatology, it can quickly become close-handed. For example, there are end times views that say Jesus already returned. So at that point I say, no. We can be open-handed until you take a particular doctrine that is, I think, not biblical, and others would say not biblical. Now we've become closed-handed. Now we disagree very strongly about certain things. So generally, we're going to have disagreements in here. Everyone comes to the table with particular positions, whether they're based off of your study or just what you grew up with, and I'm just here to say um, you don't have to believe what everyone else believes necessarily, but I hope it. whatever you believe is a result of your study. Because what you believe theologically about God, theology is the study of God, is going to govern how you live. You may not even be able to articulate your theology, but you have a certain view of God, an understanding of God, an understanding of His sovereignty, an understanding of suffering, an understanding of end times even, that is going to govern how you live and how you engage this culture. I just want you to know that whatever position you take, it is important in that sense that it's going to govern how you perceive and how you engage the world. But it's not necessarily important to hold one particular position. I hope that makes sense. But the names of the four positions I will generally go over so you understand what we're working with and the direction that I'll be going because I get the pulpit and I'm going to preach it. they're basically four main schools of thought and what they'll call dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, so they're both premillennial, 3,000 we'll say. Then there is postmillennialism, and then there's what's called amillennialism. Okay? And generally, I'm just give you an idea. You may not know, what do those mean? Maybe it's not important for you at this point, but I'm give you a general idea of what they mean. All views that I just mentioned believe that Jesus will return, but each view believes that it occurs at slightly a different time. Both the premillennial views hold that Jesus is going to return after a seven-year tribulation, but before a literal thousand-year reign that's ushered in by jesus second coming and then comes judgment so they both believe that the dispensational and historical premillenists differ in that they understand the and how they understand the rapture and when that happens rapture being the church being saved from this great tribulation or the church going through this tribulation or the church going through part of the tribulation Um, that is where they would disagree, the nature of the tribulation and the rapture itself, which you may have heard that word before. Um, Those who hold to a post-millennial view believe that the tribulation is largely descriptive of an ongoing conflict between good and evil that has highs and lows in terms of its depth of of violence, if you will, but that Jesus will return after um, a thousand-year... reign that will uh begin uh he is reigning in some sense now but ultimately post millennials believe that the world is kind of going to get better and that the church will be a, an instrument of peace that will bring a bring about kind of a um almost a global christendom of sorts and then Jesus will return the amillennial view uh is a view that basically takes the thousand year reign of christ and says Uh, He is actually presently reigning. That's largely a metaphor. And he reigns insofar as he rules in the hearts of believers and therefore influences the culture by them living out their faith. It's similar to post-millennial view in some sense. Um, But unlike the post-millennial view, they believe things are going to largely get worse, uh, not better. Uh, and that uh, Christ will uh, return when things are as bad as he sees uh, fit for them to be. Um, Many of the Ammonials, and I would be probably in this school of thought, believe that many of the prophecies, if not most of them, including even aspects of the Tribulation and the Antichrist, have already been fulfilled around what I'm going to speak to largely was the Roman-slash-Jewish war that occurred in A.D. 66 and 70. Which is the time period from Jesus' ascension to the destruction of the temple. And that was the time of an emperor named Nero. So, generally speaking, you've got dispensational millennialists who are futurist in their perspective, and they believe that Jesus will reign after the tribulation from which the church is saved. Historic premillennialists are also futurist, who believe that Jesus will reign after the tribulation, but the church will probably endure that time. The post-millennial are much more historical. They believe that in some sense Jesus is reigning and things are going to get better, and Jesus will return. And the omnipotent is largely historical, believes Jesus is reigning and things are going to get worse, and Jesus will return. Everyone got all that? I'm sure you're totally confused. Now, with regard to eschatology, as I've said um, Most people, and you may not be in this world, most people don't have a clue of what they believe. And what they believe is based off of what they were raised with. I was raised kind of dispensational, premillennial, you know, left behind type of mentality that became very popular. And that's the other way people go. What's popular? And very few spend time actually studying because it can be overwhelming and confusing and difficult. So... I'm not going to spend the next six weeks going, well, this view believes this, and this view believes this, and this view believes this. (laughs) Not going to do that, okay? What I am going to do is go, this is what I believe this teaches, knowing that even amongst the elders, we disagree a little bit. They know what I'm going to preach, but I think it's important to take a position at some point, and and I have. um, And my position is largely this. I'm going to approach Matthew 24, this text, as both historic and futurist. And so as we frame this, this is why today is going to be a large history lesson. Matthew 24, verse 1 to 35, that's the next two sermons, is teaching, I believe, about Jesus' first question, the end of the temple. And that's what those are about, and so I'm going to argue and and explain that, that much of that was fulfilled. And then Matthew 24, verse 36 through 25 is about the end of the world, including the second coming of Christ, which is obviously understood as a future event that has not occurred but can occur at any moment. So the first half, particularly the first 14 verses, but the first 35, I'm going to talk about the first 14 today, is about the past. And so in order to understand that, I need to give you um, some understanding of the past. Now, I'd like you to turn back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23 and look at one verse, verse 36, so you understand why I am viewing it this way. Verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 36 says this Truly I say to you, so this is after Jesus has just condemned all the Jews, told them that they're going to kill all these prophets, and they're going to be held responsible for all this death, and they're not going to escape hell. And then he says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. If you turn the page to chapter 24, and you look at verse 34, it says, again, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, those are the bookends of what I believe is the historical aspects of this passage. And that they apply to this generation that Jesus is speaking to, largely a 40 year time period, a generation is what that would be considered, of the people who are listening alive at that time. And so, many people reject Jesus for lots of reasons, but higher criticism will often reject Jesus for the fact that he's a false prophet. He prophesies things that didn't take place. And my argument is going to show, I pray and hope, that much of what Jesus said took place, and it took place within a generation of time after his ascension, which would be beginning of the 30s to 70 AD, so 40-ish years, okay? So let's talk about what happened in those 40-ish years. Um, And this is the history part that I will give more information next week because it helps us to understand the text. The Jews... um, Back in A.D. 66, so Christ was most likely crucified early 30s, so 30-ish years later, A.D. 66, the Jews who are still under the governance of Rome revolt, and it's called the Jewish-Roman War. You can look up in Jewish encyclopedias or anything, and you will learn about this war. The Jews had wanted to overthrow or throw off Rome for over 100 years. And near the birth of Jesus, which would be around 0 to 3, somewhere in that time period, there was a group of uh, activists called the Zealots. You may be familiar with Simon the Zealot, who became a disciple of Jesus. And the Zealots were basically um, a political or, or a radicalized group of Jews whose basic belief was that they were justified in doing whatever it took to get political and and religious freedom from Rome. Now, when you take that position, obviously you're going to be fairly radicalized, even to use violence or anything that would throw off Rome. And so these zealots are alive at the time of Jesus, and the anti-Roman feelings are there, but they tended to encourage them. Now, the feelings of anti-Rome were exacerbated a few years after Jesus' resurrection so that would be mid-30s A.D., by um, an emperor named uh, Caligula. You may have heard Caligula before. Maybe you haven't. But A.D. 39, uh, Caligula declared himself to be a god. And he ordered that his statue be set up in every temple in the Roman Empire. Okay? Now, the Jews were the only ones in the empire who said, not going to happen. You're not putting a statue of yourself in our temple. Now, Caligula uh, threatened, therefore, to destroy the temple. Oh, you're not going to do that? Fine, I'm going to tear it down. But he was not able to do that because he died suddenly, and it was somewhat forgotten. But his actions to do that radicalized all the Jews because they're like, dude, they're willing to go that far, and they got even more upset, and the majority of Jews became very intolerant of the Roman, what we'll call irreverence and just oppression. And so ultimately, after years of exploitation, financially and otherwise, and, and just Roman contempt for Judaism, they revolted. And in AD 66, it was sparked by a Roman treasury officer who came and said, I'm going to clean out the treasury of the temple and take all the money. And the Jews were like, That's it. Our money ain't gonna happen, and they revolted and they actually defeated the Roman garrison that was there. And they're like, boom, we just beat Rome. And they were feeling pretty awesome about themselves. So much so where well, they started to believe we could probably throw off Rome and be independent. Sadly, it was the last war that they would win uh, with Rome. When the Romans returned they brought 60,000 heavily armed and highly professional soldiers. And they launched what was their first attack against the Jewish state's most radicalized area in the north. Does Anyone know where that might be? Galilee. Jesus' hometown area, if you will. So they attacked Galilee, and they just decimated it. Estimated 100,000 Jews were killed or sold into slavery, and they didn't win a single skirmish, let alone a battle. Uh, The remaining leaders in Galilee, who had actually begun the revolt in Galilee, fled to Jerusalem. And when they went into the city, they themselves, the Jews, radicalized Jews, started to attack the other leaders in the city so that they could take over and radicalize all the people in the city. And so, what happened is you almost had this division of different groups in Jerusalem, like gangs. And you had what amounted to gang warfare, where the Jews basically started to uh, kill each other, uh, so much so that a ton of blood was shed, even um, shed on the temple grounds themselves. And Rome, at this point, had killed no one in Jerusalem. Now, outside Jerusalem, Uh, Titus was the general he circled Jerusalem and you will learn more about this next week when we turn about the abomination of desolation but they didn't go into the city inside the city they did cut off food and things that could come in but inside the city the Jews were engaged with what one historian called a suicidal civil war and while the Romans uh, probably would have won regardless they didn't have to and they ended up killing one another upwards of a million Jews themselves eventually during the summer of AD 70 the Romans did come in they breached the walls of Jerusalem and they finished it off in a huge mass of violence and destruction and shortly thereafter they destroyed the temple itself and this was obviously one of the most devastating the most devastating Um, event that happened in the history of of Judaism. And as I said, it's estimated that about a million and a half Jews died overall, but most of those were self-inflicted. Now, that's the history that I believe Jesus is pointing to, and knowing what happened during that time uh, will help us understand what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 24. It obviously hasn't happened yet, but the... um, question that the disciples first ask is when we know these things are happening things being the destruction of the temple he's gonna give them some signs and his signs are given to prepare them for what is going to be one of the most shocking events in history particularly for the Jew and these signs I believe that Jesus lays out are very specific to a time in history in that they happened during the 40 years leading up to A.D. 70, I would also say that these signs continue in that uh, it was a sign of the end of the temple and they will continue to happen again and again and again until Jesus returns, even if they were more intensified at that time. And what these signs are given for by Jesus is not to give them or make them these amazing, super spiritual, knowledgeable predictors as much as he's just trying to give them strength. As you look through these signs, he says three things very often. Don't be fooled, don't be alarmed, don't be anxious. Don't be fooled, don't freak out, don't worry. And he begins by telling them what's going to happen. So if we go through, and I'll go through pretty consecutively the events, and then give you some history, which much of it was in the notes that I will print up for next week, but I'll read some of those things. First and foremost, he says there are, Jesus warns about false Christ. People who will come in his name saying, I am the Christ. Um, In 1 John, which is the epistle of John, the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, says this in chapter 2, verse 18 of his first epistle. Children, it is the last hour. Now I believe his epistle is written well before AD 70, as I believe actually uh, most of all the New Testament is. But He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So the term literally Antichrist or anti means over and against. And these are not men coming and pretending, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm Jesus, I'm Jesus. These are men who are acting as um, what we'll call imposters, where they are substituting themselves as saviors, claiming divine power, uh, in insight, uh, and they are in opposition to the one true Savior or Messiah. John also says in 1 John chapter 4, Don't believe every spirit, but test to see whether they're from God. As many false prophets have gone out into the world, but this, you know, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So John speaks about Antichrists coming and there, who are those declaring themselves as saviors, declaring themselves, if you will, as gods, being in opposition to Jesus as substitutes for Jesus. And he says a lot of these people are going to come, and historically we see a ton of them came during this time uh, and Jesus' warning of the false Christ came to pass. But he says, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by him." Then he continues to say that there will be wars and rumors of wars. He says nations are going to rise against nations, and kingdoms are going to rise against kingdoms. And even though war is very troubling, he says, don't freak out. In fact, he goes so far as to say, don't be alarmed. These things have to take place. Almost expect these things, be at peace with these things. They will be troubling, but it's not a surprise to God. It is part of His plan, if you will, unfolding. And so what we see uh, at this time, if you look historically, there are two particular historians of this time that are important to note. One is named Josephus. He's a Jewish historian. One is named Tacitus. He's a Roman historian. Josephus talked about many battles that during this time Jews actually had with other people, including the Samaritans, the Syrians, the Escalonians, and the Alexandrians. Uh, That doesn't even begin to talk about all the wars that were occurring with Rome. And as I said, these things um, happen at this time in a particular place, and we continue, even after the destruction of the temple, up until the coming of Jesus to see wars happening. With our culture today, the technology today, we hear about all kinds of wars happening. Some are literally nations against nations. Some are ideologies against ideologies. We have uh, things like the war on drugs, you probably heard of, right? And what that tells us is that our culture loves drugs, so much so we have to declare a war on it. Um, you have the war on terror, which shows you that You know, you have different groups of people, not just nations, but small groups, creating wars and conflicts, and we've seen that unfold across the globe. We have social wars, like the war on marriage that we are experiencing right now. And the reality of it is that Jesus says, just as he says disciples to us, don't freak out. These things have to happen. I don't know how many Christians, I'm guessing a lot, freaked out, when the Supreme Court made this decision, no one's saying we like war. No one says you shouldn't be troubled by it. But Jesus says, don't freak out. Don't think for a second I'm not in control. Don't think for a second that these things are coming to pass without my knowledge. Oh, oops, didn't see that one coming. He says, don't be alarmed. You're going to have wars, and there are going to be more wars, both social, political, and literal battles. And so he tells them, because at this time there were a series of very specific wars, my point is, it will continue until a second coming. He continues and says, there will be famines and earthquakes. Jesus basically warns there's going to be natural disasters. And the Bible tells us these things happen at this time. In the book of Acts, which is a history of the church, Acts chapter 11, verse 27 says this, Now in these days... Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And then, a parenthetical by Luke this took place in the days of Claudius. In other words, there was a great famine that Jesus foretold of. We hear about the churches collecting food and money to send to Jerusalem so that they can endure the famine. Jesus says not only to not be alarmed, but that these are just the beginning of birth pains. This is where it's going to start. In essence, something painful will eventually result in something good. Now, for those who are pregnant, you probably know this, so I'm not going to try and shock you. My wife had five children, naturally, and it looked like it hurt. I'm just going to say, right? Um, When my wife uh, gave birth, she yelled like a man, and um, I sat there pretty, like, let me rub your shoulders, right? Like, what do you do? That's all you can do. I can rub you. I'll do whatever you say, put breath mints in. Whatever you want, I will do, because I cannot help you. And it it was painful, right? It was painful. But of the the our fifth child, our last child, Everly Grace, um, I had the glorious opportunity to catch Everly when she was born, and it was amazing. I we'd had four other births, and I never had that opportunity, or never took the opportunity. And for whatever reason, it was it was magical. It was just amazing. Um, and what you see Jesus saying is like, there's gonna be some pain. It's it's gonna hurt. And some pregnancies and deliveries, or or those you know when the baby's coming, it hurts for longer sharper different ways but eventually it's beautiful eventually a life is born and that's what Jesus is talking about here there is going to be some pain particularly the destruction of the temple and some wars and some other things but it's going to give birth to something incredibly glorious and it's so difficult for I think us to believe that in the midst of the birth pains but Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples say It's going to hurt, and this is just the beginning. In other words, it's going to get worse, and then it'll get better. He warns of all these things. In particular, I believe he's warning about the birth of the church um, through the pain of the death of, of the temple. Now, he continues, and he warns of persecution and martyrdom. In verse 9, he says that disciples will be delivered up for death, they'll be hated by all, and they'll even be betrayed by fellow believers. Now we all know, I think, the record of Saul the murderer who became Paul the martyr. Uh, Saul is recorded in chapter 8, there holding the coats as they stone Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And Saul proceeds to get authority from uh, the Pharisees to go and arrest and imprison Christians who some were killed Anyone who is of what they call the way. And so the persecution of the church is very clearly stated in Acts chapter 8 and 9. And it continues as the Jews, we read in the book of Galatians and other places, that the Jews continue to persecute the Christians. But we also learn and even read in Acts, but also in history, that what began as a Jewish persecution climaxed as a Roman persecution. And Roman historian Tacitus wrote it this way. You may have heard this before, but this is just history. Speaking of Christians, their deaths were turned into a form of amusement. They were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts to be torn to pieces by dogs. They were fastened to crosses to be set on fire. And when the daylight came to an end, were burned for an illumination at night. Nero the emperor of the time, threw open his own gardens for the spectacle and made it to the occasion of a circus exhibition. Sympathy was eventually felt for the sufferers. People felt that they were being destroyed not for the benefit of the public, but to serve the cruel purpose of one man. And under his reign, this one man, um, most of the disciples were martyred. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. It was an incredible... Uh, destructive, ugly time of death for the church that uh, we certainly see today uh, continued martyrdom. Uh, But this was um, horrible. He also warns of apostasy and betrayal. He says there's going to be false converts. Uh, Paul wrote in his last letter, if you read in 2 Timothy, uh, there were several men, if you read in the other letters, that He always was with a group of guys. He would end his letters often thanking different names and different guys. Uh, At the end of 2 Timothy, he talks about how several men had abandoned him. And one particular man named Demas had deserted him because, like the others, they were more in love with the present world. These were people who served with Paul for some time and then abandoned him, revealing that they truly weren't believers. In his second epistle, the apostle John wrote this in verse 19. Uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, it's his first epistle, I believe. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all were not of us. There were many people who said they believed, and in time revealed that they did not. And then there were those betrayals, uh, great betrayals uh, that were instrument, instrumental in the persecution by Nero, uh, Josephus, uh, actually this think is Tacitus, wrote it this way. He said, first, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. So what does that mean? Well, during this 40 years, he went around and said, okay, who are the Christians? I'm a Christian. So they'd arrest those guys. Then, it says, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. So we see betrayal, and we see fulfillment of what Jesus said in this 40-year time period. And finally, you have warnings of increased lawlessness in verse 12. In in writing about the lawlessness of this time period, historian Josephus described it this way, like, how lawless, how bad did these people get? Here's how he wrote it. This is him speaking about Jerusalem in particular. It is therefore, he says, impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly. Here's what he says. That neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. So as Josephus steps back and looks at the landscape, he says, I have never seen a city and a people more wicked and more evil. This generation was the ugliest of all. Pretty bold statement and pretty um, clearly a fulfillment of what Jesus would say in terms of increased lawlessness. But then he says something that is surprising and difficult for us. He says in uh, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And we've often understood that as the end when Jesus returns. And I'm trying to look at that first half of Matthew 24 and say, I'm talking about the destruction of the temple. That that's the end he's talking about in this place. We go, well, gosh, when did it ever reach the world? It hasn't reached the world yet, has it? Well, we begin the book of Acts and we see in Acts 1:8 Jesus says, "I'm going to send you as my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth." And the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem. Guess what? It goes through Judea, Samaria, and the book of Acts ends as as Paul is on his way to Rome where he's beheaded. In Romans chapter 1 verse 8, here's what Paul writes. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And again he says to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 23, If indeed you Colossians continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, So it's my argument and my belief that when the world is being used, the whole world, in this verse, it's speaking about what would be the inhabited or known world that would fall under the Roman Empire. And so Paul could say, and the destruction of the temple could follow the proclamation of the gospel to that whole known world that Paul says had been reached at that point. So increased lawlessness and the gospel going forth could have been fulfilled, and I believe was, before A.D. 70. And again, all of this instruction is a response to the disciples' first question, when will the temple be destroyed? When will these things happen he just said? He's not talking about his second coming yet. That will come. He's not talking about the end of the age. He's talking about the end of the temple. And so, what do we learn from this sermon? Let me just quickly close it up and just give you some things to think about. First of all, the end begins with the destruction of the temple. In other words, the destruction of the temple symbols the beginning of the end. Why is that important? It's important to understand there is an end to everything. This is going to end. The world is coming to an end. And that end of the world begins first with the end of the of the temple and the destruction that occurred in AD 70 so the end of the temple signals that the end is coming secondly the destruction of the temple confirms that there is a judgment for the rejection of Christ there are consequences for rejecting Christ and interestingly or or maybe helpful we see that that destruction doesn't happen overnight. Oftentimes people rebel against God and they're like, I didn't experience it. And people are like, dude, you're going to have some consequences. We see that the rejection of Christ didn't come to pass in terms of the judgment, the direct judgment on that for 40 years. And so when we see a country or a nation institutionalize those things that are unbiblical and ungodly, We're thinking, oh no, here it comes. It may not come for a while, but I guarantee it'll come. There will be a judgment that comes. We will experience that. Everyone will for the rejection of Jesus. The destruction of the temple also confirms that Jesus is a prophet. He was right. As I said, many people reject Jesus and say, none of this stuff has come fulfilled. When did this happen? And I would argue that if you understand A.D. 70 and the time period prior to that, you would see that he was a prophet. And as we get in next, we can see how specific he actually was. Last couple, the destruction of the temple, inaugurates Jesus' reign as king. The destruction of the temple, I believe, confirms that Jesus is ruling, that Jesus is the one and only king, that Jesus is the one and only priest, that Jesus is the one and only prophet. And the destruction of the temple removes any alternative option. It is both the judgment and the inauguration that Jesus is on His throne. And lastly, the destruction of the temple, I personally believe, and others do as well, signals that there is nothing hindering Jesus' return. If you are a left behind fan, uh, if you are a premillennialist. Uh, type of position, many of of those who hold that position spend their time trying to figure out the next events, saying, well, these five things have to happen before it comes to pass. And I would argue that nothing is hindering Jesus' return, that Jesus' return is imminent, that Jesus' return could happen at any moment. And there's nothing I'm waiting for for that to be fulfilled because of what happened prior to to AD 70 and up to it and that really can govern the way you view the world that can govern how you live so in closing as we do wait for Jesus imminent return I want to remind us of what Matthew 24 doesn't do and that is he is not trying to um, make his disciples perfect precise predictors he's trying to prepare them and give them some sense of peace that he is in control I believe it's a mistake to try and figure out every single person, every single event, every single detail, because I don't think that's Jesus' point. Jesus wants us to be, I believe, godly people, not perfect predictors. As such, we need to understand our mission. And right before he ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples this final word to encourage him in that way. In Acts chapter 1, Verse 7, he said this, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now think about that, right? Right before he dies, he's like, here are the signs, here's how it's going to happen. He dies. They spend upwards of 40 days with him as a resurrected Lord. And then as he's going, like, alright, is this it? Are you going to restore your kingdom? This has got to be it. None of those signs have come to pass yet. Perhaps they had amnesia of what he had said. But he says this to them. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know the times or seasons. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Let's be clear of what our responsibility is. We are not called to understand every detail of history and every event that's coming in the future. We are responsible and called, and this is where our focus should always be, even as we study and and focus and, and understand these things, of proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Being witnesses to the work and person that He is and what He has done for us. And to be witnesses to the fact that we all agree to is he is coming whether you think things have to happen before it does or not what we do know is that he is going to return and we will experience his reign in a very literal and direct way So that is what we proclaim and we proclaim it no more clearly than right here as we take communion every Sunday we often talk about finding our identity in Christ and we need to talk about that all the time because we have a tendency to define our acceptance on what we've done or what we haven't done or what we understand or what we don't understand. Understand this. You are saved by grace, through faith, in what Jesus has done for you. But this meal, Jesus said, was to be partaken of as many times as you gather until I return. And so as we partake in this, you know what we declare? That Jesus is returning. Now we don't talk about that enough. That Jesus, I believe, can come any moment. Come right now. That'd be like rad. Like he's gonna come. I'm like, told you, right? It'd be awesome. But that is a celebration. As you dip the bread and, and and you dip it into the cup, you are declaring that Jesus is alive. And that he is returning. And then we should live then as a people who actually have a hope. The next couple weeks we'll talk about what does it mean with that expectation. But I think it's important to understand what has happened up till that point. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is simple and yet it is deep. And it's my prayer, Lord, that as we go through what are very confusing at times and hard words that your son spoke, that you will first and foremost give us a hunger for your word, a greater appreciation for your word, a desire to study your word so that we might understand those things that you revealed. But I also pray you will help us discern those things that are a mystery and be okay with disagreeing. But what we can agree to, Lord, and what we can celebrate, Lord, is that your Son is returning. And we pray that as we see the judgment on a people that rejected you, the Lord, we will be inspired to proclaim the coming of your Son even more boldly in the dark world that we live in. Give us hope, remind us of the joy of our salvation, and give us peace upon waiting for your return. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.